Okay, brothers and sisters in the faith, thank you again for joining us in our Bible study for today. In today's topic for the BHP, the Bible History Project, instead of continuing our series on the book of Judges, we're going to go to a different route today. We're going to look back at the work of restoration. And as you will see, the work of restoration is needed because there's a history of an apostasy of the words and teachings of our Father. And so we're going to look at the work of restoration, why it's important. Now, who is the one who continues the work of restoration? Let's read the book of Acts 3, 20, 21. Then times will come when the Lord will refresh you. He will send you Yahushua, whom he has appointed to be the Christ. Heaven must receive Yahushua until the time when everything will be restored, as God promised, through his holy prophets long ago. We all know about the work of Yahuwah, his work of redemption, and his work of restoration. What is the work of redemption all about? It's about redeeming the souls of people who have committed sin so they can be set free from that sin and follow the teachings and commandments of the Father. However, Yahuwah sacrificing his son to die on the cross the work of redemption is not the only work of Yahuwah. Henceforth, Yahuwah engages in the work of restoration. Bible says Yahuwah busies himself restoring everything to its proper order. And so this is what Yahuwah's work is today. This is what Yahusha's work is today. And we must join in the work of restoration that the Father is doing through our King Yahusha. Remember, this is what he will do until Yahusha will finally send his beloved son. To get a glimpse of this work of restoration, when Yahusha was on earth, he said the following to his disciples. Yahusha said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. According to our King Yahushua, the climax of this renewal of all things, the restoration of all things, is when Yahushua will sit on his throne and he will have his apostles sit together with him to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We believe this will take place in the millennial kingdom. And so we know that there is this work of Yahuwah restoring everything on earth so it will be brought to subjection to our King Yahusha, who will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords at the appointed time. But before this happens, before there can be restoration, we know, unfortunately, when we look at the people of Israel, they suffer through many apostasies in their history, which brought much suffering and pain in their experience. In the book of Deuteronomy 31 to 4, when all these blessings and curses that I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever Yahuwah your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to Yahuwah your God, and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today. Then Yahuwah your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you 
and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens from where Yahuwah your God will gather you and bring you back. And so to carry out the work of restoration spoken by our King Yahusha, where he will sit on his throne and Israel will become the people of God again. The Bible says there's going to be a scattering first of the people of God. Why? Because of their apostasy, because of their infidelity, because they rebelled against Yahuwah Abba. Despite sending prophets, despite sending messengers, they rejected the warning of Yahuwah. And so finally, Yahuwah takes them to captivity and scatters them. But Yahuwah says, I will gather you again. And so we see here the apostasy and the restoration of the work of our father, Yahuwah. And we believe this is going to be fully fulfilled at the end times where Yahuwah will take those who were scattered from the distant places throughout the world and bring them back into their land. And in their land, what would Yahuwah do? Deuteronomy 35 to 6, he will bring you to the land that belong to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Yahuwah, your God, will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And so we see here that Yahuwah's work, when he brings his people back to the land, they're going to be more prosperous and numerous than during the days of their fathers. But this will take place when their hearts are circumcised. This is speaking of the new covenant when Yahusha will reign. We know at present Yahuwah is at work because Yahuwah's work of restoration includes spiritual restoration as well as physical restoration for so the return to Yahuwah, that's spiritual restoration. The return to the land, that's physical restoration. Yahuwah is involved and engaged in both kinds of works. This is why we're not surprised that Israel became a nation in 19, I forget the date, 1948, right? Despite the overwhelming odds that they would become a nation again, by Yahuwah's will, he brings Israel into becoming a nation. Again, this is setting up Yahuwah's work of spiritual and complete physical restoration. And so Yahuwah is at work and he is restoring all things. And we know, and as we study the fig tree prophecy, we are living in the very end of the end times because we represent the last generation and in our generation, we can expect our King Yahusha to come and to establish the kingdom of our Father. So spiritual restoration will begin with Yahusha and leads to a physical restoration of Israel with Yahusha as King of Kings reigning for a thousand years in Jerusalem. And so this is the work of restoration. We, who are members of the Assembly of Yahusha, we need to be watchful. We need to be aware of Yahuwah Abba's work of restoration. Why? So that we can join. We can join him in the work of restoration. The one thing we do not want to do is to oppose 
the work of restoration or to hinder the work of restoration or to ignore the work of restoration. What we need to do is to join and participate in Yahuwah's work of restoration. He invites us to do that. This is why we believe the assembly of Yahusha is, is here to participate, to work with our father and his son in his work of restoration. Now, what is included in this work of restoration? Well, not just the physical part of it, the gathering of all his people into the one nation. There's also a spiritual element which involves the word of God. This is why in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, it mentions it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Here we see the work of the assembly, at least what we need to be participants of, because the Bible says he gave gifts, he gave works to be done by the assembly. And what is this work? To teach the word of God. Until when? The Bible says until we all reach the unity in the faith. Question, have we reached the unity in the faith? Not yet, because there are many foes in existence today who do the work of God, but they all have different beliefs. They're not perfectly united, right? We're not there yet, and we're not going to get there until Yahushua returns. But what is our work? We do our best. We preach and study the word of God until one day we reach unity in the faith. What else? We also continue to study and to preach until we grow and grow in the knowledge of the Son of God and attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is our ongoing work of restoration. We need to restore our understanding so that we can obtain the full measure of the fullness of Christ and the knowledge of the Son of God. And so we need to participate in restoration because when we study the history of the people of God, we can see evidence of apostasy. And so because of the apostasy, we need to engage in restoration to undo the work of apostasy. So what we need to do so that we can identify the works of restoration is to first examine the history of apostasies. And so once we look at the history of apostasies, we know what kind of work we are to be engaged in and what we must proclaim to undo the work of that apostasy. Well, what is one kind of apostasy that we see evident in the people of God again and again and again? Let's read 2 Chronicles 34, 3-5. During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. Then in the twelfth year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, and the carved idols and cast images. He ordered the altars of Baal to be demolished. And that the incense altars which stood above them be broken down. He also made sure that the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and the cast images 
were smashed and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the pagan priests on their own altars. So he purified Judah and Jerusalem. And so what we read to you, beloved brethren, is about this work, the work of a good king. I mean, there are very few kings who are good, right? And when we study the, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, very few kings who are good. One of these kings who can be called good was Josiah. Why? Because he was engaged in pleasing and glorifying who? Yahuwah our God. So what did he do? At a young age, he wanted to look at ways he can restore what is faulty in the work of Israel, in the work of Judah. And so how did he begin his work? He noticed all the idolatry and all the paganism, and he removed them. Because when you look at the history of God's people, what do you notice pop up again and again and again? Idolatry, paganism, where they adopt the worship of these pagans and heathens and they incorporate it in their worship. I mean, take a look at what they established, the Asherah poles, representing the outward splendor of their, their works, the carved idols, bones of the, the burned, they burned the bones of the pagan priests of their own altars. And they have their own altars. And so these are all parts of pagan practices, like the cremation and all that stuff. And so they were into that. And Josiah, who was a king, he removed all of that. And so this is one of the apostasies of the people of God. They engage in idolatry and pagan forms of worship. And so Josiah does not end there. He continues. He wants to do the work of restoration. So he's looking at ways that the people of God has fallen away from the faith or apostatized. Second Chronicles 34, 14 and 18. While the money was being taken out of the storeroom, Hilkiah found the book of the law of Yahuwah. I want to pause there for a while. And so here's Josiah. What does he want to do? Restore everything that's out of place. That's what he wants to do. And so he begins by removing idolatry and, and, and paganism. He also wants to repair the temple. And so that's what they're doing. People of God are repairing the temple. And so they take out money from the storehouses. And as they were doing that, they discovered something. What did they discover? The book of the law of Yahuwah. Do you know what that means? All this time. All this time. They did not access that book. Can you imagine how low the people of Israel fell? For the longest time, they were not reading, they were not studying the book of the law of Yahuwah, the law that God had given to Moses, the Torah. He said to Shaphan, I have found the book of the law here in the temple. He gave Shaphan the book, and Shaphan took it to the king. He reported, we have done everything that you commanded. We have taken the money that was kept in the temple and handed it over to the workmen and their supervisors. Then he added, I have here a book that Hilkiah gave me. And he read it aloud to the king. And so in Josiah's work of restoration, he discovers the book of the covenant. And so this was read uh, to Josiah. And when he received this reading of the book of the covenant, the book of the law of Yahuwah, he called for Huldah, the priest, was a female priest, 
and the female priest said, uh, Yahuwah is going to punish your people, but he's not going to punish you during your reign because you're a good king, because you sought to restore the kingdom of God and to restore the book of God. But, oh, and so what did King Josiah do in response? In 29 to 31, King Josiah summoned all the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, and together they went to the temple, accompanied by the priests and the Levites and all the rest of the people, rich and poor alike. Before them all the king, the, uh, before them all the king read aloud the whole book of the covenant which had been found in the temple. He stood by the royal column and made a covenant with Yahuwah to obey him, to keep his laws and commands with all his heart and soul, and to put into practice the demands attached to the covenant as written in the book. And so what did King Josiah restore? Because it was one of the apostasies of the people of God, the restoration of the Ten Commandments, to be committed to obey again the Ten Commandments of our Father Yahuwah. So that's a history, one of the histories of the apostasy, the neglect of the Ten Commandments. Not pe many people realize this, but the people of Israel, for the most part, not only did they follow or worship idols, they also really rejected and ignored the Ten Commandments. Can you imagine? They had no access to these commandments for the longest time. What else? What happened? Because Josiah began to restore all of these things. Let's read. For seven days, all the people of Israel who were present celebrated the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread since the days of the prophet Samuel. My goodness, that was a long time ago. Since the days of the prophet Samuel, the Passover had never been celebrated like this. None of the former kings had ever celebrated a Passover like this one, celebrated by King Josiah, the priests, the Levites, and the people of Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And so part of restoration was restoring the proper observance of the Moedim, the Feast of Yahuwah. Isn't it amazing? For the longest time, they were not observing properly the Moedim. They neglected the Moedim. That was an apostasy of the people of God. Josiah restored the proper observance of the Moedim. And during our time, the Christian era, is that also part of something that we need to observe? In the book of Colossians, which, by the way, is in the New Testament. This is not an Old Testament book. It's a New Testament book. Apostle Paul has this to say. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival. He was speaking about the Moedim, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So Apostle Paul is telling us the religious feasts called the Moedim and the Sabbath that was presented to Moses in the Old Testament they were shadows of things to come. In other words, they were templates. They were patterns for worship. And so what is expected of us, disciples of our King Yahushua, that we rehearse, that we memorialize these shadows that point to Yahushua. We observe the Moedim properly by doing so in the name of our King Yahushua. You see, the feast, the Moedim, and the Sabbath were patterns for worship gatherings and these were called convocations in the assembly today. 
We observe the feast. We observe the Sabbath. How so? By having assemblies, by having a convocation or a worship gathering. And so one of the apostasies that we saw was the neglect of the feasts, the Moedim of the Yahuwah. What also was one of the apostasies? Jeremiah 23, 26 to 27. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. What also was one of the apostasies of the people of Israel. Slowly but surely, they're forgetting the name of the Father. They're forgetting the name of Yahuwah. Instead of calling upon the name Yahuwah, they called upon different names. They called upon the name Baal and something else. And so the Bible tells us that early on, in the his, in, even during the days of the prophets, like the prophet Jeremiah, who was prophesying during the days when Judah was exiled in Babylon, Yahuwah is telling Jeremiah, this is one of the reasons why. You have forsaken me. And the people continue to prophesy, but they prophesy in a way so that people will forget my name. Yahuwah. I wonder why. I mean, what happened in Babylon? There's some, when people of Israel were exiled in Babylon, something happened to them there. According to this book, the sort of part name written by Dr. Ron Kenoli, when the Yisraeli, Israelites came out of Babylonian captivity, they brought along with them the Babylonian culture, along with it, Babylonian beliefs and superstitions. One of these Pagan Babylonian practices or beliefs was called ineffability. How many here have heard of ineffability? It's the concept that tells us we're not allowed to pronounce the name of God because it's unpronounceable. And if you pronounce it, you go you, bad things are going to happen in your life. It's a superstition. This law was the superstition. Now, this was a superstition against the use against using the name of a deity for fear of something bad happening to them. The idea was that if you said the name of a deity, he or she would notice you. The pagan practice of ineffability was further reinforced by Greek Hellenization. And so when they were taken to captivity in Babylon, they picked up some superstitious beliefs. From who? The Babylonians. What is one superstitious belief? The concept of ineffability, that it's wrong to pronounce the name of a deity. And so these Israelites who were in captivity for a long time, they, begin, they began to practice that even after their captivity. In this book, The Final Reformation by Dr. Koster, the ineffability of divine names was an old idea in Egypt, the name of Osiris himself, was said to be ineffable. The name Marduk of Babylon was also declared ineffable. The Greeks avoided the names of their deities and preferred to call them by the titles Kurios and Theos. And this is what happened with the name of God. This is why today we don't, many people do not know the name of God started there in Babylon with this concept of ineffability, which is also practiced by other pagan belief systems like the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Greeks, because when Yahushua was here on earth, 
the Greeks, together with the Romans, they influenced Jewish culture. And so what happened when they wrote the original manuscripts, those who were copying them, they purposely removed the name of God and replaced it with kurios and theos. Where did this practice come from? A superstitious belief that came from Babylon. And this the, the replace, the, these replacements were done early. Since after the second century of our era, no more traces of the writing and pronunciation of the name are found, except among a few Christian scholars. And so slowly, they completely remove the sacred name of Yahuwah. After 150 CE, God's name disappeared of most usual copies in Greek of the Septuagint. For example, Tertullian, a Latin Christian, quoted the text of Matthew 24, 44, to prove that both Jesus and God were the same Lord, but he mistook Lord used as a name and the Lord used as a title for the Messiah. And so by 150, you can no longer find the actual tetragrammaton or name of God. It was replaced by Kyrios or Theos. And so in, Mo, in the Greek manuscripts after 150 AD, they completely removed the name of Yahuwah. And this caused a lot of confusion, right? Like what kind of confusion? Tertullian, he misused the term Lord. And so because of this, he incorrectly concluded that uh, Jesus is also God. And so because of what the Israelites started from the Babylonian system and through the Hellenization of the Greeks, who also believed in ineffability, what became a tradition, especially when translating the Holy Bible from the preface of a translation of the Holy Bible, the Good Speed, this is what it says. In this translation, we have followed the Orthodox Jewish tradition and substituted the Lord in all caps, right? L-O-R-D for the name Yahuwah. Where did this sub tradition of substituting Adonai, Lord for the name of God? History suggests that during the Babylonian captivity, Israel adopted the pagan practice of not pronouncing, pronouncing the name of God. And so this pagan practice that started in the Babylonian captivity carried over the first century all the way to the time of the Greeks. And so even today, we feel the negative consequences of this pagan influence. They remove the name of God and replace it with Adonai or Kurios or Theos. And so we lost the name of God. And so that's something that was apostatized. And it's not what Yahuwah's will is, because in Exodus it says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. How can we remember the name of Yahuwah if we don't know what it is? This is why it was an apostasy. That's one of the history of the apostasies, the removal of the sacred name of God, Yahuwah. What also happened in the Babylonian captivity? It also corrupted the name of the Son of God. How so? 
The name of Yahusha is a compound name. According to the theological dictionary of the New Testament, the full form Yahusha is a sentence name, a compound name, in which the subject comes first and represents a form of the divine name Yahuwah, and in which the verb is a subsidiary form of the verb Yasha, Yahuwah, Yasha, Yahusha. So that's the full name of our king, Yahusha. But after the Babylonian captivity, called pre-exilic times, look at what happened. The Greek form of the list of Old Testament characters who in pre-exilic Hebrew are called Yahusha. And usually after the exile, Yeshua. You see how it transformed? Before the Babylonian captivity, Yahushua. After the Babylonian captivity, Yeshua. And from there, the corruption continued. When you look at this table, for example, we begin with Yahushua, the original Hebrew name of the son. It became Yeshua because of the Babylonian captivity. The Greeks wanted to transliterate the name Yeshua. And so the, uh, uh, the Greek letters Iota and Eta was used to transliterate Ye. This produces the transliteration Yeshua. But then they continued the process of Greek transliteration. It becomes Yeshua and then Yeshua. But you cannot have an A ending in Greek because it has to be a, 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 it has to be a male or a masculine Seuss ending. So they add the Seuss. So Yeshua becomes Yesus. And then from Greek to Latin, you get Yesus. And then you have the invention of the letter J, Jesus. That's how you go from Yahushua to Jesus. But this is not the name of salvation. The name of salvation is the name that Yahuwah preserved from the beginning, which we can see in the name of the son of Nun, Joshua, and also in the high priest during the days of Zechariah. And so Yahuwah preserved it, and he gave instructions to an angel to give the name that he selects. And that name is Yahushua, because the name Yahushua has the meaning he will save his people from their sins. Yahuwah saves. I am he who saves. You cannot get that meaning from the name Jesus. And so there was another apostasy. The sacred meaning for salvation was corrupted. What also was an apostasy? Well, we know when Yahushua was here on earth and he preached the kingdom of God, Judah Israel rejected our king, Yahushua. And so Apostle Paul said, Yahushua went to the Gentiles. So this is recorded in Romans 9, 24, 26. Even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place. Where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So according to Apostle Paul, after the Jews or Israel rejects Yahushua, it gave the opportunity for the Gentiles to be grafted in through Yahushua. And so the Gentiles became the people of God. They will be called sons of the living God. And so the gospel was preached to the Gentile territories. It was preached to the Roman, preached to the Greeks. But when it was preached to the Greeks, Apostle Paul noticed something. What was that? 
29 to 31. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Apostle Paul knew there's going to be a falling away because there's going to be people who are going to twist and distort the word of God and they will draw disciples after them. And so when we study the history of the church from its beginning in the first century all the way to the fourth century, we can see there's this deterioration in the doctrine of the word of God. And one of these deteriorations, unfortunately, is about who God is. This is like one of the major delusions that has happened because of what Apostle Paul warned us about. And so in this book, this course is on the Apostles' Creed. Thus, for example, it was not until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea that the church, the Catholic church, defined for us, it was an article of faith, that Jesus is truly God. In 381, at the Council of Constantinople, it was defined as an article of faith that the Holy Ghost is God. And so when the church began to spread and, const and Rome persecuted the church, Constantine comes into the picture and he has like a dream. And so he adopts the Christian faith for himself. And then he force converts all of these Gentiles. And all of a sudden what you have is a Christianity mingled with paganism. And so you have all these feasts. You got like Christmas and Easter, so on and so forth. Not only that, you also have a transformation of God, the Godhead. And so according to Constantine, he was actually the one who, who made official the Trinity. And so in 325, Jesus is declared truly God. 381, the Holy Ghost is declared truly God. So the Catholic Church teaches that there's but one God. In this one God, there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, who are perfectly equal to each other. And so we can see that the invention of the doctrine of the Trinity comes after the death of the apostles. What is unfortunate is not only do they create a new concept of God, the three-in-one, the Trinitarian concept of God, not only was it invented, it was imposed. You know how it was imposed? Bible says the other, uh, the most successful was a great emperor Justinian in the sixth century, who for a brief period regained much of the Roman Empire. The other great achievement of the emperor Justinian was the gathering up and sorting out of the laws of the Roman Empire into one system called the Code of Justinian. We studied about Justinian before when we were looking at the seals of the book of Revelation. Part of this law had to do with the Christian religion and the church. The code says that any who refuse to believe in the Trinity and any who repeat baptism shall be put to death. That I was in the code of Justinian. And so they imposed, not only did they invent this doctrine of the Trinity, they imposed it so that if you don't obey it, you'll be put to death. This is why it's so popular today. But it's against the will of God. It's an apostasy. Why? Because the Shema 
reveals to us the true God. Did you know that? The Shema says in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, Hear, O Israel, Yahuwah our God, Yahuwah is one. Love Yahuwah your God. And so here the Bible tells us in this foundational creed of the people of Israel, they were to recognize Yahuwah as God and that he is one. So Yahuwah is one God. He's not a trinity, but one God. His name is Yahuwah. Because if the names are given, we know because of the names, Yahuwah and Yahusha, we can see the Trinity cannot be. Because how many names are you going to give God? There's only one name for the one God, that is Yahuwah. Okay? And so that's another apostasy, the imposition of the Trinity doctrine. What else? What else happened during the reign of the emperors of Rome? Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday, but shall work on that day. What day is that? That's Saturday. Sabbath. And so they're abolishing the Sabbath. But the Lord's Day, shall they shall uh, especially honor. And as being Christians, shall, if possible, do no work on that day. If, however, they are found Judaizing, you see, Emperor Constantine, the Catholic Church, they despise the Jews. They should be shut out from Christ. And so if anyone was, you know, Judaizing by celebrating or honoring or observing the Sabbath, they were to be expelled. In 590, Pope Gregory, in a letter to the Roman people, denounced as the prophets of Antichrist, those who maintained that work ought not to be done on the seventh day. And so those who observe Sabbath are called Antichrist. And so even today, there are people who preach that those who observe the Sabbath, well, they are demonic. There are people who preach that. On the 18th of January, 1563, the Council of Trent ruled that tradition is greater than Scripture. Can you imagine that? Tradition is greater than Scripture. After a powerful speech by the Archbishop of Regio, in which he said that the fact that the church had changed the fourth commandment clearly proves that tradition was greater than Scripture. What's the fourth commandment? The Sabbath. And so what does this tell us? The fourth commandment was changed by tradition. What tradition? Tradition of the Catholic Church. Unfortunately, many follow that tradition. The Protestants follow that tradition. The English and the priests still follow that tradition, unfortunately. And so they will say, if you follow and observe the Ten Commandments, then you are an, an antichrist. You are demonic. Can you imagine that? But since Saturday, uh, since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not the church observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Yes, of course, it is inconsistent. But this change was made about 15 centuries before Protestantism was born. And by that time, the custom was universally observed. They have continued the custom, even though it rests upon the authority of the Catholic Church and not upon an explicit text in the Bible. And so the abolishing of the Ten Commandments, that was invented by the Catholic Church because they hated Judaism. And so the tradition 
of the Catholic Church remove the ten or the, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And after that, it became universally observed. Even the Protestants follow that tradition. But when you look at scripture and when you look at the work of restoration, this is what the Bible says. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make shall remain before me, says Yahuwah, so shall your descendants and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, says Yahuwah. And so when we look at the work of Yahuwah's restoration during the millennial kingdom, before the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible says the people of God and the people of the world are going to be taught to worship on a Sabbath. From Sabbath to Sabbath, they shall come to worship Yahuwah. And so, beloved brethren, the abolishing of the Sabbath works against the work of restoration. And so that's one of the apostasies of the history of God's people. But we're not done. We're not done yet. Look what happened in the fourth and fifth century. The Imperial Church, according to Healy's Bible handbook, the Imperial Church of the fourth and fifth centuries had become an entirely different institution from the persecuted church of the first three centuries. In its ambition to rule, it lost and forgot the spirit of Christ. Worship, at first very simple, was developed into elaborate, stately, imposing ceremonies, having all the outward splendor that belonged to heathen temples. And so you see the apostasy of the Christian church who started in the first century, according to this historian, when you examine church history, you compare this, the church in the fourth and the fifth, comparing that to the first century model, it changed radically. How so? You can, you can tell in the fourth and fifth century, the authority was to rule. They had this spirit, not of Christ, not the gentle spirit of Christ, but the spirit of ruling over people called Nicolaitan, right? And so not only that, the emphasis of the church shifted from the internal to the external manifested in the building projects of temples that showed outward splendor. This is why during the days of the fourth and fifth century in the Catholic church, henceforth, Many, many of these so-called Christian people of God, they were into the business of building temples. And in the days of the Catholic Church, that was a, a great opportunity to, to get money because you can use it as, as a way to generate income, right? Oh, we're going to build this house of worship. We need your donations. We need your money. And even today, there are many churches today who will show their temples and their houses of worship. And they're proud of it. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with having a place of worship of your own. I mean, it's good to have that, right? But if your emphasis, if you will tell the people, we belong to the people of God as proof, look at all our houses of worship. When you emphasize the splendor, the outward splendor of the house of worship, that's not the spirit of Christ, brethren. Not once did Yahushua ever say, build me a house of worship. No. He never said. 
He never commanded that. There are people today who use that as an opportunity to exploit people. And that's why they keep asking for more and more offering. And you know, when you think of building projects, it's an open door for a lot of corruption when you have building projects, like building houses up, worship. Take a look at what Apostle Paul said. They will hold to the outward form of our religion, but reject its real power. Keep away from such people. Apostle Paul tells us in the last days, people will hold on to the outward form of religion, but reject its power. What is the power of the true religion? It's the word of God, the love of God. But we're going to look at the outward form. What you can see from the outside. And so when you look at it from the outside, looking at that religion, you're going to say, you know, that religion is really successful. Look at all the people that go there. Look at how big their houses of worship are. And you're going to say, you know what? That's the people of God. But that's not what Yahushua said. That's not what Apostle Paul said. In fact, Apostle Paul said, if there are any religions who emphasize and hold on to the outward form, but reject its real power, keep away from such people. Yahushua says the same thing in the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? This is the message from the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know what you are doing. I know that you have the reputation of being alive, even though you are dead. So wake up and strengthen what you still have before it dies completely. For I find that what you have done is not yet perfect in the sight of my God. Here's Yahushua. He's looking at the church in Sardis. And he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You know what Arking Yahushua is saying? Outwardly, they have splendor, a reputation of being alive, right? But inwardly, they are dead. And so Yahushua is telling us the emphasis ought be on the inner transformation, not the outward external splendor. And so Yahushua says, you better get your act together. But then he also says, when he looked at Sardis, he said, but you have a few, not many, but a few in Sardis who have kept their clothes clean. They will walk with me in white clothes because they deserve it. Everyone who wins the victory this way will wear white clothes. I will never erase their names from the book of life. I will acknowledge them in the presence of my father and his angels. Yahushua said, you have all these people, and you have this church who is parading their accomplishments, their outward splendor and their world records. But Yahushua said there's a few who kept their clothes white. White, simple, and clean. That back then, the way people kind of lauded themselves was they were all these elaborate accessories of their clothing. But Yahushua says, I'm looking at pure white clothing. What does that represent? Your way of life. Holiness. What Yahushua is telling us is, it's not the outward splendor. It's not the external, but the internal. Our way of life that matters to our King Yahushua. And what does he say if we're victorious and that we live a clean way of life? Yahushua said, I will not erase their names from the book of Life. Did you get that? The one who can erase our names in the book of life is not the executive minister of the Iglesia Christa. No. 
The one who can erase our names from the book of life is only our King Yahushua. You want to please him, not the other one. You please our King Yahushua. And what Yahushua wants is for us to cleanse our clothes. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. He did this to make the church holy by cleansing it, washing it using water along with spoken words. Then he could present it to himself as a glorious church without any kind of stain or wrinkle, holy and without fault. You see the assembly, the church belongs to Christ. Christ gave his life for it because he wants to cleanse it. He wants to make it holy. And what is the purpose of the restoration work of our King Yahushua? The work of restoration is found here because the Bible says Yahushua cleanses it by giving his life for it, right? That's redemption. But then he also washes it by, through his spoken words. This is the work of restoration. And so Yahushua redeems it and wants to restore it so that it can be glorious. Do you know what the, what the meaning of a glorious church is? I want you to think about that. What do you mean by a glorious church? A radiant church. What do, you, what do you have in mind when you think about a glorious church? For many people, it's the outward splendor of temples, right? They look, look at our building projects. We built houses of worship all over the world. Look at our temples. The outward splendor, that's what people go to. But Apostle Paul says, no, no, it's not the outward splendor. What is the glorious church? It's right there. Without any kind of stain or wrinkle. Holy and without fault. So the emphasis must not be on the external, but the internal transformation that leads to holiness. And so that's another apostasy. The emphasis on the outward splendor rather than holiness. We have one more. Another work of apostasy that took place. What else? In this Catholic book, Radio, Radio Replies, Catholics rightly therefore call the priest father, not to the exclusion of their father in heaven, but as a manifestation on earth of the supreme fatherhood of God in the spiritual order. So we have here the priest. They want to be called father, not to the exclusion of their father in heaven. And so what they have done is to elevate the position of priest to be that of the level of the Father. And so when you elevate a leadership position or a leadership role, like the Pope or the priest, and you call them Father, that's not right. What else? Manual, Christian doctrine, again, Catholic book. What is the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church is the society of all those who being baptized profess the faith of Christ and are governed by their lawful pastors under one visible head, the Pope. And so the Pope is called Father. Pope is called the head, the visible head, the Pope. And so again, who is supposed to be the head of the church? Yahushua. But for the Catholic Church, the one head is who? The Pope. Here's another one from Iglesia de Cristo, Minister and Debater Jose Ventilacion. There's only one flock. True. There's only one church. True. There's only one shepherd. True. That shepherd is Brother Felix Manala. False. We respect Brother Felix Manala as a great Bible teacher. But we don't believe he is 
the one shepherd. We believe Brother Paulix Mao can be a shepherd. Why not? There are many shepherds. There's only one, the one shepherd. Who is that one shepherd? It's Yahushua. That shepherd is Brother Felix Manala, not Jesus Christ, because Christ said there will be, and that it, there will be, and that is in the future, according to Minister Jose Ventilacion of the Iglesia Ni Cristo. And so we can see there's this apostasy in, in, in how the people of God are governed and administered. They elevate the power and authority of those who are to oversee the people of God. And Yahushua warned about this. He said, you must not be called teacher because you are all members of one family and have only one teacher. Who is that? Yahushua. You must not call anyone here on earth father because you have only the one father in heaven. Who is that? The father, Yahuwah, not the Pope. Nor should you be called leader because you, your one and only leader is the Messiah. It's not the executive minister of the Iglesia in Christ. The Messiah. It's not about the Felix Manalo, the one shepherd. No, the Messiah is the one Lord, the one shepherd, the one head, the one king, one Messiah, one leader of those who belong to our King Yahushua. And so when you elevate the overseers to having power and authority that they don't, they're not, they're not supposed to be given to them, that's an apostasy. So we have here a list of apostasies over the years, right? Idolatry, rejecting the Ten Commandments, forgetting the Moedim, removing the name of God, corrupting the name of the name of the name of salvation, which is the name Yahusha, the, the true name of Christ, imposing the Trinity doctrine, abolishing the Sabbath, emphasizing outward splendor, elevating the power and authority of spiritual leaders. All this represents what apostasy. And this is the history of the apostasy of God's people. And so when Yahuwah is working to restore, he's going to correct that. This is why we, who are of the assembly of Yahushua, we participate in the work of correcting that, which is what? The work of restoration. You see, restoration is not just physical restoration. It's also spiritual restoration. And when it comes to spiritual restoration, it is restoring the apostasies by preaching the truth of the word of God so that what we preach is the pristine teachings of our Father to the best of our ability. And so we, the Assembly of Yahushua, what do we do? We look at the history of apostasies and we restore it. How? By preaching the truth of the word of God. This is why look at what we do in the assembly of Yahushua. What do we preach? What do we preach? Do we preach against idolatry and pagan forms of worship? Yeah, we preach against that, don't we not? Do we preach the Ten Commandments? Yeah, we're restoring what has been apostatized. Are we practicing and preaching the Moedim? Yes. We're restoring what has fallen what has fallen away from the people of God. Do we preach the true name of God? Yes. We proclaim his name, Yahuwah. Do we preach the pristine form of the name of our King Yahushua? Yes. That's why our name is called Assembly of Yahushua. Do we preach that Yahuwah God is the only true God? 
Yes. Do we practice and observe the Sabbath? Yes. Do we emphasize holiness more than the outer splendor of temples? Yes. Do we understand and practice the true biblical art and work of leadership? Yes. Because we want people to go to our true leader, the one appointed by Father, his beloved son, Yahusha HaMashiach. So we are disciples of our King Yahusha, and we are engaged in the work of undoing the history of the apostasies of God's people. We undo that work. We undo those doctrines. It's called the work of restoration. And that's what we're engaged in. And until when are we going to be engaged in this work of restoration? Let's read the final passage of our studies today. Matthew 28, 18 and 20. Yahushua drew near and said to them, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so this is, beloved brethren, that passage of our King Yahushua, we need to accept. He is our one and only leader. He's our one and only leader. We need to please him. We need to follow him. And what he tells us to do is, Go then to all peoples everywhere and make them my disciples. Not disciples of the Pope, not disciples of the executive minister, but disciples of who? Yahushua. My disciples. Baptize them, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I will be with you always to the end of the age. And so this is what we preach. We teach everything Yahushua taught us, everything that we understand recorded in the Holy Bible. We preach the whole Bible because we believe it is inspired and it points to our King, Yahushua. We do this until the end of time. And who is with us in this work? The one who authorized us in this work, our King Yahushua. He promises us, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Most holy and gracious Father, Yahuwah, thank you so much because you listen to our prayers. Thank you for bringing us together in a fold of our own where we bear your name as members of the assembly of Yahushua. We are privileged and happy to bear your name, to proclaim your name, because you are our King and Mashiach. May you stand by our side. We, sheep that belong to you, you are our one shepherd, and we will follow you until the very end. May you please be with us as we prepare to express our gratitude and our thanks in our upcoming special worship service. Thank you because of your voice, because of the authority you have. You have blessed us with this work of restoration. Help us to participate in your work. Help us to do our best to listen to your voice. And may we, at the end of time, when the trumpet sounds, be with you forevermore. Father, Yahuwah, you are our only true Allahim. We profess that and we believe that. Help us to uphold your commands. Help us to live a life of holiness. May you bless the assembly. May you allow it to prosper in terms of holiness and righteousness. Teach every member, teach every family to live according to your commandments. 
and to become holy and godly with each passing day to prepare us for our salvation. We believe, Father, you have listened to our prayers. For we ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.